Thank you, band. Give the band a hand if you would. So good. So good. Thank you, David, for leading us in communion, too. So special and just a wonderful reminder of what God has done for us. And we get to continue on that theme this morning as we look at Luke 22. Turn your Bibles there, if you would. We get to look at probably one of the, uh, the, the characters of Scripture that probably we don't spend too much time looking at, and that's that of Judas. Judas Iscariot, and, um, and, and, the, and the, the, the account of Jesus and Judas really is one of betrayal. Write that word down, betrayal. It's such a, such a painful word for those of us who have been betrayed. Just curious, uh, welcome to Betrayed, Betrayed Anonymous. I'm Scott. Uh, anyone else there? In, we're going to call it BA, Betrayed Anonymous. Um, I remember in high school... When God saved me, so I was 15, I was a sophomore at, uh, at a school here in the, in the valley, and uh, I, you know, when, when you become a Christian, when God saves you, something dramatic happens in your life. You know, sometimes it's not all fireworks at the beginning, but I remember how my relationship with Christ caused, caused, caused division, and that wasn't something I sought out. That was something that happened uh, with my friends. I used to hang out with the stoners even though I myself was not a stoner. Are there still stoners today in school? Is there still that classification or that genre? No? Okay. They're usually the ones that, you know, walk around with the Metallica shirts. And my day, it was ACDC and Iron Maiden. And yeah, right. Um, so when Christ found me at 15, it was, a, it was heartbreaking to see the friends that I considered friends fall away. Guys like Jeremy, guys like Nick, guys like Bronco. Yeah, that was one of my friends, Bronco. Um, fall away. And to feel as if those friendships that we had spent years together, growing up playing football, especially on Saturdays, the Stoners versus the Jocks. That was a famous game up in North Phoenix at the time. For those of you who are like, I've heard about that. That was us. That was the infamous Stoners versus Jocks football game. But to have those guys like retreat, to have those friendships just kind of fall away, you know, it leaves you with this empty feeling. Betrayal is painful because when so much is built around loyalty and trust and they have all that disappear, it, it's, it's painful. And just when you think, you know, oh, okay, Lord, thank you for taking me through betrayal 101. I never have to go through that course again. He allows me to go through it again. And that has to do with guys that I used to be in ministry with. And guys, and it seemed like the, the, the blink of an eye. Guys that you said, you know, we're going to die together. We're going we're gonna to storm hell with a squirt gun together. That kind of ministry. The moment when all of them with unanimous voices say, we're not working with you anymore. We want you to leave. And that's painful. You know, at... At 15, it's one thing to, to no longer have the stoners as your friends. But in your 30s, to have gone through so much spiritual blood, sweat, and tears with guys, and then to have them say, we don't want to partner with you anymore. It's painful. Have you felt the sting of betrayal in your life? Perhaps the poster child of betrayal is Judas. We look at Luke 22 and... Um, we set up this scene, and, and I'm going to tell you, perhaps there's no greater villain in all of history. 
You know, we think of Benedict Arnold as the ultimate act of treason and betrayal. Judas Iscariot is the poster child. Because Judas Iscariot commits the greatest crime in all of human history that ultimately leads to the most spectacular sin ever committed. That was the murder of the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. Someone once said these words, the most spectacular sin that has ever been committed is the brutal murder of Jesus, morally perfect, infinitely worthy, divine Son of God, and probably the most despicable act in the process of this murder was the betrayal by one of his closest friends, Judas. So we turn to Luke 22, and we pick up with where the, the, the disciples and Jesus and, and thousands, tens of thousands of, of, of others have gathered for Passover. And I love how David took us back to Exodus to remind us of this Passover celebration that was about to take place. And the key thing you need to understand about the Passover is the fact that, and David did a great job of, of, of pointing this out for us, that the angel of death would, would come over the land of Egypt and it would pass over those houses who had applied the blood of the spotless lamb on their doorposts. And the spiritual image is true for us today. If you do not have the blood of Christ on your heart, then you're susceptible to judgment. But if you have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your hearts, the angel of death passes over you. And you can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so we thank God for, for Jesus. And this is what ultimately the scriptures point to. So we look at Luke 22, and, and, and again, we, we have this scene where things are culminating. Things are getting more intense. We're, we're just moments away from Jesus being arrested, being betrayed, arrested, led to trial, six trials, and then ultimately condemned to die, a, a criminal's death, a, a death he didn't deserve to die, but he did it. Not for himself, he is infinitely worthy and perfect, but he did it for the sins of the world. He had to stand in our place. And so we come to, to Luke 22, and, and we're going we're gonna to not only look at Luke 22, but we're going to reference other passages because this is one of those scenes that the gospel writers speak to. And so he's gathered for the Last Supper. We all know Leonardo uh, da Vinci's, I was going to say Leonardo DiCaprio, but Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, right, where... You know, Da Vinci points out and he paints in his picture, if you've ever seen it, you know, there's these groups of disciples and when they're gathered around the, the table, the Lord's table, right, this Last Supper celebrating communion, you know, they're all like uh, frustrated, they're all distraught, they're all sad by what the news that Jesus has, has announced, but there's only one character who doesn't show this sense of, of being distraught and that's Judas, so Da Vinci was, was sure to let you know who Judas, Judas is because he's the one that's not bothered by the announcement of someone betraying him. And so we turn to Luke 22 and we read verses 1 through 6. Now the feast of the unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. So this is a time of a celebration. This is Israel's most holy holiday. So it's approaching their celebration Tens of thousands of people are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate this. And it was a requirement that you did as a Jewish person celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. So you came to Jerusalem. Every Howard Johnson, every Ritz-Carlton was full to the max. 
They're there celebrating, right? And then all of a sudden, the celebration from verse 1 turns into this dark scene in verse 2. It's amazing how Luke just automatically shifts gears. So while there's celebration in verse 1, look at verse 2. And they began, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, and they were afraid of the people. So we go from celebration in the, in, in the air to this group of men who want to kill Christ. The religious leaders who should have been preparing themselves for this most holy holiday can only set their hearts about in scheming to get rid of the Son of God. Look at verse 3. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, because that was where he is from, Belonging to the number of the twelve, he was one of the disciples, verse 4, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus to them. So now we have a mole. We got someone on the inside who's willing to do the work that the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the Sadducees, everyone didn't know how to do. Now they got themselves a mole. Look at verse 5. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And he consented and began seeking a great opportunity to betray him to them apart from the multitude. May God write his eternal truths on our hearts this morning. So here they are gathering for this holy holiday. Jesus is with his disciples for the last time. We know from the the book of John chapter 13 that Jesus references the fact that someone's at the table who's going to betray him. Makes the scene sad, the sense again of betrayal. He cites Psalm 41 verse 9. I think we have the slide up here. This happened thousands of a thousand years ago. David and one of his leaders, Ahithophel, Ahithophel betrays David. And in the Psalms, here's what David writes, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus in John 13 cites this. And he says what happened to David happened, but it also pointed to a greater reality that a thousand years later, someone at this table, who I would call my friend who will betray me, lifted up his heel. That is the word that is spoken of a horse kick. That really hurts someone. And so Jesus is saying, one of you here will betray me like this. And what happened with Ahithophel in David's army? Ahithophel, after he betrayed the king, went and hanged himself. The same thing, because we know the narrative is going to happen. So here's Jesus with his men, loving them, showing grace to them, showing kindness to them recognizes that all of them there are gathered, but not all of them are faithful to him. History's greatest crime is about ready to take place on Israel's, during Israel's most holy holiday. And here's what's sad, that the leaders who want to get rid of Christ, because of Passover, they've all cleansed their homes, but they have not done the more important work of cleansing their hearts. This is such an important point, you guys, that God deals with our hearts he doesn't deal with your houses and how many crosses and how many you know wonderful christian sayings you have faith hope love how many times you come to church how many times you pray the size of your bible how many bible apps you've downloaded who's got more than 10 here just raise your hand okay just curious god is a god who deals with our hearts 
And these religious leaders, their hearts were far from God. And so here we are, Luke 22. And now we see that Judas doesn't act alone, that there's a behind-the-scene actor. Look at verse 3 and circle the word Satan. You guys remember the church lady? Satan. What you have to understand is that Satan has opposed Christ from the very beginning. And Satan's main objective, because he knows Jesus is going to die on the cross. He knows Jesus is going to die for the sins of the world. The, the demons believe and have faith and yet shudder. Their faith is not a saving faith. And so Satan, knowing what is going to take place, is going to oppose Christ to try to deter Christ. This happened in the wilderness wanderings, right? When the wilderness temptation. When Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days in the desert and Satan comes along and tests him three times, you remember that, and says, oh, you're hungry? Turn these stones into bread. Oh, you're going to be the prince? You're going to be the king? Tell you what, let's bypass the cross. Let me just give you the kingdoms now. Just, just bow down and worship me. See, there is never a shortcut when it comes to the plans of God in saving his people. And this is what the enemy tries to do. He tries to sabotage the work of Christ. And now he's going to do it with one of Jesus' closest friends, Judas. And, and the idea here is perhaps not so much one of possession, but so much of this, that, that Satan can control and influence. Ladies and gentlemen, Satan is still active today. It actually says in, the, in Peter that Satan prowls about like a, a lion a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. Let us not discount the presence of the enemy even in our world today. And this is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 will tell us that this is why we don't, we don't just focus on what is seen because your battle is not against flesh and blood but against the unseen forces at work. And they've been at work since the very beginning. It started in the garden and it takes place even to today and will ultimately be vanquished one day when the consummation of the kingdom of God happens when Christ comes back. Amen? So Satan is still controlling. Satan is still influencing even today. And perhaps we see it on no greater, on no greater display than in the work of Judas Iscariot. And we're going to talk about how Judas got to a point where he allowed Satan to control and influence him. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now that darkness will always grow in the heart that allows darkness to dwell within it. Jesus is the light of the world. God's word is the light. And where the light is not allowed to permeate, darkness will grow like crazy. Judas only knows darkness. He didn't start off like that, but he only knows darkness at this point. How does he get there? Four things I want us to look at because I think Judas serves as a warning to us. That Judas, these four things I believe are important, serves as a warning to us. And I pray that the Lord would use them to encourage us because there are a lot of Judases still around there and there have been and there will be. And so maybe today's uh, bumper sticker motto is don't be a Judas, right? So write that down. Don't be a Judas. You don't need to. First point is this. Judas shows us dangerous appearances. No one ever guessed Judas was the traitor. No one ever guessed that Judas was the betrayer. 
No one ever guessed that Judas was the guy. This is why Jesus sits there at the Last Supper and says, one of you here will betray me. Not every eye looked at Judas. You know, I think we think Judas is the guy who only wore black, who walked around with a continuous scowl on his face. I mean, he was the guy in charge of the money. You don't trust someone who you think is the villain with the money, right? And so by all appearances, no one guessed Judas would be the betrayer. And yet, he did a fantastic job of keeping up appearances. See, there are a lot of people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. See, one thing you need to know about Judas is this. He was chosen by Christ. Jesus, when he assembled his team, he assembled 12 men to journey with him for three plus years, and he knew full well one of them would not be faithful. How many of you would, would, would do this, right? Like, I know one of you is going to be the wink wink, but I'm going to have you anyways. And for three years, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and he still loved him, and he still showed grace to him. He still was kind to him and compassionate, and he used him. Think about Judas. Judas did everything that all the other disciples did, which makes this so crazy, right? The fact that, that appearances can be misleading, See, Judas, Judas shows everyone how close a person can come to God's kingdom and yet still be lost. Judas shows us that even the best example with the most compelling evidence in front of them, the finest teaching that they're able to hear, cannot in and of themselves change the human heart. I know some of you are like, man, if only you could come you know, to, to church and, and hear the band or hear Pastor Scott or read this book, and you can give someone the best evidence, and yet if their heart is not affected, they're not going to change. This is humbling, isn't it? How many of you, like I've, I've asked this question years ago, I said, if, if you could have a superpower, like if you were like, you know, Marvel Comics com called you and said, we want you to be a superhero. You get to pick the superpower. Which one would you choose? I'm sitting here as a pastor who's done ministry for 30 years. I want the power to change someone's heart. But that's the very power you and I do not possess. And it's amazing, isn't it, how someone can hear a message and two people can sit under a message and one could be changed and the other could just remain hardened and rebellious. It's a work of God on the heart. See, Judas saw with his eyes the clearest evidence. He heard with his ears the finest teaching. He, he, even with his own feet, followed the greatest example, and yet this man still betrayed Jesus. For three years, this friendship was tight. This friendship was tight. You eat together, and you fart together, and you laugh together, and you proclaim. Yes, I said that. Some of you are like, my Jesus is too sterile to fart. No, they farted. And you don't go camping with Jesus and the other disciples and battle demons together and see amazing things occur right before your very eyes and fellowship with the creator and, and, and yet betray him? That's a level of darkness that I hope many of us will never, ever understand. Yet he kept up appearances, didn't he? He... He left all to follow Jesus, just like the other disciples. He, he participated in signs and wonders. He gained the trust of the other disciples. He was the treasurer. He heard the preaching. He had great respect among the group. 
Obviously, he was gifted in business because he was the, the CFO of the disciples. Yet this child of darkness remained in darkness, even though externally he was shrouded in light. Ladies and gentlemen, only God knows your hearts. This, this, is, this is the hard work of ministry. is when you have people who profess and they may not possess Jesus. It's easy to honor God with our lips. It's a whole lot harder to just be with God when the lights are off and no one's looking and be authentic in that relationship. John chapter 6, if you want to write this down, verses 67 through 70, Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And I've cited this before, and I love what Peter says here. He says, Lord, where are we to go? You are the one that has the words of eternal life, and, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered and said, yes, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Meaning Jesus, throughout the ministry, recognized that not all who follow him, not all who listen to him, not all who participate in the work of ministry with him are authentically, genuinely connected to him. And he calls one of them out as the devil. And what, how do we even arrive at this designation? It's because you're left with a series of choices in light, life where you either pursue the light or you pursue darkness. You open up your door to either light or darkness, and that begins the snowball effect. See, Judas was where, is where he's at because of a series of choices he made that were not honoring to God. And deep down in his heart, I think he knew it. I think he felt the emptiness. John chapter 13, we continue. He says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. I, I wish that they all said, and they all looked at Judas with these piercing, judging eyes. But he is one of the 12, and no one would even guess that he would be a traitor and turn Jesus over. They had eaten and slept and ministered with a devil in their midst. Imagine that. Can I just tell you that among those who hate Christ the most, some once professed to trust Jesus. I have seen in my, in my life, those who have the most disdain for God are the ones who grew up in the church. The ones who hate Christ the most are the ones who, it looks like they tasted and saw that the Lord was good, and then they spit him out of their mouth and they say, I never want to taste that again. It's heartbreaking. A couple months ago, I read an article, world-famous pastor, someone that I admire. His son has this very popular TikTok channel. Is that what you call it, TikTok channel? Yeah, okay. So this guy gets on, and he posts these two, three-minute videos of growing up in the church and why he never wants to step foot in a church again. He posts these videos and says, here's how I've, I've, I've been involved in the church. I'm going to tell you, yeah, they're, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And this guy's got million-plus followers. And he was in it, but he was never really in it. Those who often hate Christ the mo most are the ones who have 
seen the church and participated in the church and have stood on the stage and been a part of the band and stood on the stage and proclaimed the word of God and then they walk away and then you sit there and scratch your head and go, how does that happen? How does that happen? See, what happens is there comes a point when you either give yourself to him completely or you give up on him completely altogether. There comes a point when in your heart, the gospel does one of two things. Write this down. The gospel either attracts you or it repels you. This is what the work of the gospel does. It either shows you life or it shows you death. It either reveals to you light or it reveals to you darkness. And then it comes to a point where you either accept it or reject it. For three plus years, Judas was given the opportunity. And he continued to open his door of his heart to darkness. I'm going to show you how this takes place. How does this happen? Second point. Judas shows us uh, that there's dangerous affections at work. And all the choices you and I make have to do with affections. That is a great word. That word affections. Your heart has been designed by God to cling to stuff. To long for, to yearn for something. The question is, what's your heart clinging to? Well, we know what Judas's heart clings to. This is what I love about the scriptures. The scripture doesn't leave us in this kind of foggy like silence about Boy, I wonder what led to Judas's demise. It tells you it was his love for money. It was greed. It was, it was the, the very things that Jesus continued to teach. Judas heard it with his own ears that you cannot serve both God and money. You either hate the one or serve the other or hate the one and serve the other. That's what he says. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Right? So God is all about your affections and that your affections are yearning and longing and clinging to things that are life-giving, not life-sucking. And so we look at the dangerous affections at play because there's something bubbling below the surface of Judas's soul. See, this is, this is where ministry can get complicated, right? That, that we don't know what's going on in somebody's heart, right? Someone professes Christ. I want to take them at their word, but I also want to watch their life. There's nothing wrong with that. This is where sometimes, you know, the greatest verse in the, in the world has shifted from John 3, 16, which says God has so loved the world that he gave, right? It's all, all the sporting events and all that. But now the, the most popular verse in the world is Matthew chapter 7, don't judge, But that's a hypocritical judgment in that context. We are called to judge because there's this this thing we call fruit that's born in our lives. Right fruit indicates right root. Wrong fruit indicates wrong root. That's Scott Morgan Theology 101. I won't charge you extra for that today, all right? But how do we, what's going on in someone's heart? What's going on in Judas's heart? Here's the battle. Money versus God. Write that down in your notes. Money versus God. The love of money, and maybe you've never heard it phrased like this. The love of money led to the arrest and ultimate murder of Jesus. The love of money led to the arrest and ultimate murder of Jesus. We know from Scripture that the principal motivation in Judas's heart was his love for money. That's why he goes to the religious leaders 
and says, I'll be your mole, I'll be your huckleberry, and just name your price. What will you pay me to deliver him into your hands? Here's his motivation, right? What can I make from this? Do you guys know how much? 30 pieces of silver. The price of a common slave. The price of a common slave. This is important to understand. Cheap. You want to know how much Judas valued Jesus? 30 pieces of silver worth. And I wonder if the religious leaders were like, man, maybe we should have offered less. And to be honest with you, Judas would have taken less. Because there was no treasuring Christ in his heart. He loved money. How do we know this? Because he, in his life, demonstrated a stronger yearning for money, and it almost increased and accelerated once he realized that money can't give the happiness that he's craving. This is what sin does. Sin starts in these very small, incremental ways, and, and when you get a little bit of it, and it completely wears off as far as its satisfaction, it increases your investment. And the more it increases your investment, the more it promises you, but the more it leaves you dissatisfied. This is what's going on in, in Judas's soul. He treasured money and he didn't treasure Jesus. And he was seeking things that money and this life will promise you, but it will never deliver on. And that is, this will make you happy. Just like the couples I've told you about that I've done weddings for, and they sit up there and exchange their vows. I'm looking forward to you making me happy the rest of my life. I'm sitting there going, no, that's not what you say. And you hear it all the time, right? I'm just going to, I just want to make him to make me happy and her to make me happy. And I'm going, this, is, this thing's going to end in a, in a train wreck. Money was never designed to make you happy. Your jobs were never designed to make you happy. Your spouse, your boyfriend, your dog, your home, your, your imported car was never designed to make you happy. There's only one who has designed you to find complete satisfaction in him. Augustine, the great quote, our hearts are restless until they find their rest with you, O God. And I'm sure every single one of us, if we're honest today, realize the empty promises of what the world values and that we've chased after and we've sought after and we've lost marriages over and we've broken relationships over for the sake of having that thing. And when we get that thing, we're unhappy and we're miserable. And if I asked for a show of hands, if we're completely honest, every hand would go up in this room. Amen? We've all been down that miserable path. And yet it is a gracious reminder that God is our heart's satisfaction. Jeremiah chapter 2. Bonus verse, not up on the screen. Somehow the Spirit says, this, this group needs this this morning. You keep building for yourselves cisterns that can hold no water. When there's a fountain that never ends right there, why aren't you drinking from it? Jesus is the cistern that provides water that will quench your thirst forever. Woo! Now we're preaching. Judas never tasted that water. His yearning became stronger 
for his stuff than his yearning for God? And maybe that's a good application question. What does my heart yearn for? Is my yearning for God growing stronger than my yearning for stuff? Is my longing for God growing stronger than it is for my longing to have a better job, a better boyfriend, more money, dream vacations? Oh, I just want to be on the beaches right now. And that's what's pulling my heart. And Jesus is saying, I'm the best beach you could ever hang out at. I love what Randy Alcorn says. He says this, Satan works on the assumption that every person has a price. Often, unfortunately, he's right. Many people are willing to surrender themselves and their principles to whatever God will bring them the greatest short-term profit. So, you take Judas's heart and his hungry and his hunger for, for money, and what do the disciples do? They make him treasurer. And we know that the gospels tell us that he would take money from the, 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 the bag. He was pilfering the money, right? He was a thief. Jesus knew this, and he never called him out. Isn't that amazing? It's almost like Jesus is putting his money where his mouth is, no, no pun intended, when he says, seek the treasures that are above, not the things of the earth. I mean, Jesus is running a nonprofit. They are having a hard enough time keeping money in the, in the, in the, in the, in the accounts, He's got someone under his nose embezzling money from him. But Jesus can sleep soundly at night knowing this. Why? Because there's greater things to pursue and be concerned about. See, Judas was a thief. And the more he acted on this misplaced hunger, the more sin it created. And the more that sin was created and the more unconfessed it was, led him into a darker, darker place. Write down that word, un, or that phrase, unconfessed sin. Because this is a pattern in Judas' life. He never stopped to confess what he himself knew was wrong. And when you live with unconfessed sin, there is an unbridled hunger for more sin. And yet 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, we're going to find that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And you have an advocate who's in heaven who wants to, to be on your side. He's for you, not against you. He just needs you to be honest. And the more we live in darkness, the more that sin will grow and fester. See, Judas had a problem with hiding and harboring sin in his heart. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Here's the problem. Judas was treasuring the wrong thing. He had the capital T treasure right there before his very life for three plus years. And he never saw the beauty of that treasure. He always settled for the beauty of lesser treasure. I can't tell you. I've known a couple people who have worked in not this church, but in other ministries where they love Jesus, they serve Jesus, 
and then all of a sudden you see him on the evening news. Not in a good way. Can I just tell you, if I see you on the evening news, I want to be a good story. These people were embezzling money from their churches. And it's a weird thing when you, all of a sudden you see a person's face, you're like, I know that person. It wasn't our churches. It was other friends that we know who passed these churches who had people right under their noses embezzling money from them. And there's a sinking feeling. Even if you're not directly connected to it, you're like, this is the church. How can someone do this to the work of God, the kingdom of Christ? And it's happening right there. Perhaps Jesus was on to something when he says, you'll either love money or you'll hate God or you'll love God and hate money. Judas shows us dangerous affections. Here's the good news. Jesus, he pursues us like crazy. Even at the, at the Lord's supper, supper table, remember two things. Write these down. He washed the disciples' feet. And guess who was there to get their feet washed that night? Judas. And who was given the seat of honor at the table for Passover? Judas. Think about the grace that was shown. Even in his persistent sin, he was still shown kindness by Christ. And, then, and there's an important lesson here because Jesus really does. He's, a, he's not a hypocrite. He's a man of his words. He really shows us how to love our enemies. Here's the one who's going to betray him and ultimately lead to his crucifixion, and he's washing his feet. When was the last time you washed your enemy's feet? Exactly. When was the last time you gave your enemy the seat of honor at the table? Exactly. Jesus did this, and, and, and I... This is such an important point to note. Jesus wasn't so much concerned about Judas's character as he was concerned about Judas's soul. We live in a context right now where I believe the church is guilty for being concerned about character at the expense of someone's soul. I honestly believe this. As someone who, I call myself a theologian of pop culture, I, I call myself a theologian of, of current cultural events, whatever title you want to give to me and make me a cool little business card, I'm going to tell you, as I consider the conversations I have with people, the perception of the church is this. We expect sinners not to sin. And what we're not doing is telling sinners where to find relief for their, their anguished soul, and that's Jesus. Stop trying to correct character when that character even hasn't even had a change of soul yet. Am I, am I connecting with you, you guys? We expect people to act like they love God when there's not a heart that loves God. And if we make the conversation about character and we miss out on the conversation about soul, we're damning people to an eternity without God. Jesus allows the embezzler to exist in his ranks. Why? Because he's not out to change this man's character. He's out to love his soul. That's why he washes his enemy's feet. That's why he gives his enemy the seat of honor at the communion table. We need to start loving people in order to reach their souls and be okay with whatever their characters may look like. Because there's a lot of unsavory people in our lives. Can I get an amen? You may be one of them, so don't, don't amen too exu exuberantly, right? 
thank God he's a God who doesn't want to just change our behaviors. He wants to change our hearts. That's what it's about. Judas was given every opportunity that all the other disciples were given. And I praise God that Jesus was an example to us on how to love our enemies and do, do good to those who hate us. Luke chapter 6, if you want the reference for that. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. So here he is, Judas, the poster child of, of 1 Timothy 6. Write that down. I don't have a, a slide for you. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, Paul says, that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Does Judas not fit that verse? He does. And he's so eager to get rid of Jesus. Sin has so blinded him to the beauty of Christ that he will accept next to nothing to betray the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Here's what happens with our affections. They'll eventually bubble to the surface and come out in our attitudes and behaviors. That's the third point. Judas shows us dangerous attitudes. This is why when someone says, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm sitting there going, cool, I'll accept that at face value, but deep down inside, I'm going to watch their life. Because your profession must ultimately resemble a possession. We look like Jesus if you love Jesus. If you truly love Jesus, you'll become like Jesus. What that looks like for all of us is different. But there's going to be growth. For the person who says, I'm 20 years old in Christ and they haven't changed in 20 years, I'm questioning that person's conversion statement. All of us are on this sanctification path in Christ. The, the, the speed, some of us are running the 100 meter, some of us are running the 10,000 meter. And it's all mixed relays, just so you guys know. It's all mixed. That's a, just an Olympic reference right there, so... Here's how it came out. What goes on in our hearts will ultimately manifest itself in attitudes and behaviors. So Jesus warns us that the unbelieving heart will, will, it will make itself known in, in a variety of ways. Here's what happened with Judas. It came out with a woman who came and broke her alabaster vial of perfume on the feet of Christ. If you guys remember Mark 14, write it down. Don't, don't turn there. I'll just summarize the... The narrative, uh-oh, I'm done. Okay, let's pray. Let's get out of here. All right, so Mark 14, just kidding. Uh, Mark 14, here's a woman who comes in, and she breaks her alabaster vial of perfume on the feet of Christ, and Judas stands there and goes, what a waste. Don't you know that that year's worth of perfume, the value of it was like a year's worth of wages, has now been wasted on the feet of Christ. And to, to, to appear pious, he says, think of all the poor that could have been impacted by that, that money. But inside, the gospel writer says, he only wanted to spend it on himself. Here's the revelation of it, right? Here's a woman who comes in, John chapter 12, I'll just give you a little snapshot, John 12. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor, right? Sounds so righteous and good. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having been charged of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Maybe he walked around thinking, hey, I charge a convenience fee for being the treasurer. 
Maybe, you know, there's something for my work that I need to go ahead and go, you know, one for Jesus, two for me. I don't know how he figured it out. But in this situation, on the surface, he looks very righteous and pious. But deep down inside, the writer says he was up to no good. And here's why this account is important. Both this woman who is nameless and Judas were pursuing treasure. Don't miss out on that. She was pursuing treasure. He was pursuing treasure. But the treasure they were both pursuing was different. She wanted the treasure, capital T, Jesus, and would gladly sacrifice anything to have him. Judas would settle for earthly treasure because 30 pieces of silver was the price for his soul. Something so meaningless, so valueless, so trivial, he would gladly turn over the treasure, Jesus, to have 30 pieces of silver. Jesus simply couldn't fathom this woman's ridiculous decision. And I'm going to tell you right now, when the world sometimes looks at Christians, they don't understand the reversal of values we place on life. The things that we're gladly going to give up the things that we're gladly going to give away, the things that we're gladly going to sacrifice. Why? Because having Jesus is infinitely more valuable than having anything else. And you know, some of you have never tasted that truth. Some of you have never tasted it. You keep pursuing the little tea treasure thinking, this is going to make me happy. And then you come up and go, it wasn't happy. It didn't satisfy. It didn't bring me contentment. See, the woman who broke the perfume before Christ, would tell you, Jesus is worth everything you're willing to sacrifice to have him. Matthew 13, verse 44, write that parable down. Shortest parable, my favorite parable. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, and a man comes along, finds that field, goes and sells all he has with joy in order to buy that field. Because this man understands when you taste and see that the kingdom of God is here in Christ, you'll gladly give up everything to have that field. What have you sacrificed that is of infinite value that the world would say you're crazy to give that up, but you're like, but you're crazier not to have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? What have you given up that's of value so that you can have Christ? It's a great question. What are you willing to forego that maybe two years ago you would have thought, this is so important, and today you're like, it's not important at all. Christ is important. This woman wastes her value, valuables to have Jesus, which ultimately leads to true worship. Let me give you a phrase, and you may want to write this down. See, waste in God's economy is gaining the world's valuables and losing one's soul in the process. That's true waste. Worship is gaining Jesus and losing everything else with joy. Do you guys get what I'm tracking? Waste is gaining the world's valuables and losing everything else in the process, including your soul. But worship is gaining Jesus and losing everything else in the process. But you're happy about it. So just this past week, there's a famous guy who died. 
named Ron Popeil. Does that name ring a bell? So back in the day, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to sound old when I say this, there used to be these commercials, infomercials, as seen on TV commercials, right? And there's this guy who became the king of TV commercials. His name's Ron Popeil. He came out with such project, projects like the Vegematic. And the most famous is perhaps the Popeil Pocket Fisherman, right? Just pull out this, this little you know, fishing pole. And so what's cool is back in the day when I was a limo driver for a big hotel company here in the Valley, I actually drove Ron Popeil's mom to her Paradise Valley house on occasion, Evelyn Popeil. I got to hang out with Ron Popeil's mom. She didn't say much. She would go to the, the hotel, have afternoon tea, and then just want to ride home into her Paradise Valley house. So that was my brush with fame. So you guys can touch my hand later, okay? But here's the phrase that Ron Popeil made famous that I believe the devil uses every day when he tries to entice our hearts to chase stuff other than God. Wait, there's more. Write that down. You'd run the commercial, right? And just at the moment when you're about ready to lose your viewership, you say, wait, there's more. For the price of one Popeil pocket fisherman, you can have two pocket fishermen's. If you call within the next 10 minutes, call this number on the screen. Give us your credit card. But wait, there's more. And we're like, I can't turn the channel now. There's more. Right? And to make the pot sweeter, we'll send you this glow-in-the-dark Jesus statue, which you can set on top of your TV and worship and watch Orange is the New Black. I just, don't, I've never seen it before. I've heard about it. But wait, there's more. And this is what the devil does. If you never come to the place where you see Jesus as the treasure, you'll constantly follow the voice that says, wait, there's more. And you'll follow this path, and I'm going to tell you right now, the wait, there's more path always leads to emptiness and destruction. Truth? Yeah. The wo Here is Judas looking at this woman give this, this bottle of perfume, breaking it over the feet of Christ, and he's sitting there going, what a lost opportunity. And I'm sure if she would have known his heart, she would have looked at him and said, you have no idea what I'm losing in order what I'm gaining. Talk about lost opportunity. Judas reminds us that nothing good can come out of giving up on Jesus. Which brings us to our last point. Judas shows us dangerous atonement. So what happens at the end of the account of Judas betraying Christ? He betrays Jesus for the agreed amount price of 30 pieces of silver. He, he goes back. He has dinner with Jesus and the disciples. And then he goes and leads the authorities to where Jesus is. And we'll talk about this more in, in, in the weeks to come. And then when he realizes what he's done, regret sets in. Write down that word regret in your notes. And regret says to him, go back and get a refund. Go back 
and, and give the money back and perhaps you can make things right, right? So he goes back and he says, listen, take the money back. I don't want it. Like, you know, I want a refund. And they're like, we don't want your money. What's done is done. And he leaves there. And what does he go do? He goes and hangs himself. Something else happens in Luke 22 that we're going to get to here in a, in a couple weeks. There's another moment where Christ is betrayed by another disciple. You know who his name is? Peter. But the outcome of Peter's regret looks different than the outcome of Judas's regret. So write down the word Peter in your notes. Write down the word Judas. Because under Judas, you can write ungodly sorrow. And under Peter, you can write down the phrase godly sorrow. What was Peter's betrayal? The very th fact that in the courtyard that night, he denied association with Jesus. Remember? And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. He says, no, I won't. He says, you're going to deny me. No, I won't. He says, three times, Peter, you are going to deny me. And you'll hear the rooster. And you'll know what you've done. So we have two now betrayers among the midst of disciples. As if one's not enough. As if one's not painful enough. But yet, I believe God gives us a picture of these two, Peter and Judas, to show us what we do with regret, because regret will ultimately lead to remorse, but there's usually a peace, and here's the peace that's different for Judas and Peter, and you want to write this word down, regret leads to remorse, and if it doesn't lead to repentance, you are damned. Regret leads to remorse, but if it doesn't lead to ultimately the last stage, repentance, you will be destroyed. There's a lot of people walking around this world today. There's a lot of people sitting in this room this morning who have regret and have remorse, but have never come to repentance, and that fact is eating them alive. It will destroy your soul. Second Corinthians seven ten. Godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Second Corinthians seven ten. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Notice the key word repentance. Two men, two failures, two paths. One of them leading to transformation and fresh faith, the other leading to despair and death. Judas embraced a worldly regret. Not believing that Christ could ever forgive him. I'm going to tell you something right now, you guys, as, as we just kind of wrap this up. The deadliest lie you can ever believe from the enemy is that you are beyond forgiveness. That is the most destructive lie that exists from the beginning of time to the end of time. If in your heart you believe you are beyond forgiveness... This is what Judas 
believed. That somehow Jesus could never forgive me and now therefore I must atone for my own sins. To which I will say, good luck with that. What do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our shame? What do we do with the hurt and the pain and the betrayals that we've committed against God and others? If you think you have arrived in, in your life to a point where you're beyond forgiveness, you will seek ways to atone for your own sins. And that is a path that will always, underline, always lead to death. why Matthew 27, verse 3 and 5, it, it says this, Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver, said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it to yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. That's the path of worldly regret. How many years did he spend with Jesus hearing about the message of grace and mercy and forgiveness? And not just listening, but experiencing the loving and tender hands of Christ himself washing his feet. Sharing the table, giving him a place of honor. I love what John Calvin says. True repentance is displeasure at sin arising out of fear and reverence for God and producing at the same time a love and desire for righteousness. See, it's not enough to betray innocent blood. It is to, to realize that Jesus was who he said he was and I can come to Christ for forgiveness and he will forgive me for anything I've ever done. And let me underline the word everything. Romans chapter five, verse 20, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's what you need to remember. There is nothing you've ever done that can't be forgiven by God. Repentance is what heals us. Repentance is what brings wholeness. Repentance is what saves us. See, repentance allows us to run into the arms of a God who knows and still chooses to forgive. When there's no repentance, you're going to run somewhere. And unfortunately, without repentance, you always run into the arms of death. What is godly? regret. It is grieving over the things we have done, and we believe that God is the only help available to us. We turn to God in faith, we confess our sins, and we look to the cross where the penalty of our sin was placed upon the Son of God. You can never make up for your mistakes. You can never make up for your mistakes. There are no refunds. You have to take those sins, however grievous, however horrible they are, and you go back to the cross like Peter did. Peter was honest. You can bring your sin before God and find mercy and put things in place that will help you change the way you live. And I love the fact that Peter was broken before Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm going to use you, Peter. Because he was honest and he was broken. You know what the greatest sin Judas ever committed was? It wasn't betraying Jesus. The greatest sin Judas ever committed was not falling upon the mercies of God that could forgive. The story didn't have to end the way it ended. 
you think the greatest sin ever committed is the sin you're holding on to inside that you think you're beyond forgiveness for, don't leave here this morning without recognizing today is the day you need to fall on the mercy of God. He knows, and yet he loves. He knows, and yet he forgives. He knows, and yet restores. Quit holding on to the thing that you believe is beyond forgiveness. And lean on the fact that like Peter, your failures are never fatal. Amen, church? Back to the cross. Passover. The angel of death is circling. But if you have the blood of the lamb written on your hearts, painted on your hearts, you're blessed. And you can live a new life that God gives you today. Fall on the mercy of your God. Let's stand, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Chance to examine a life that many of us perhaps have, have held at an arm's length and thought, I can never be like that. And yet perhaps when we kind of peel back a little bit of the, the veneer, we find out that in some ways we're not unlike Judas. Lord, you know our hearts and you know what's going on in our lives and we don't want to hide. We don't want to give this impression that we're somebody that we're not, Lord. Meet us in that duplicity. Lead us out of our hypocrisy, Lord. Show us that there's nothing worth more than having Christ. A, a, a Christ who knows us so completely and thoroughly. A Christ who accepts us in, in the, the filthiest parts of our lives. Lord, you know and you still love us. What, a, what an amazing truth that is. Help us to fall upon your mercy. Help us to, to not follow the path of Judas, but follow the path of Peter, who is honest and open and repentant and broken, because only on that path will we find life. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your tenderness towards us. Thank you for reminding us of the truth that once we're in Christ, there's nothing we could ever do to make you love us more and there's nothing we could ever do to make you love us less. You love us perfectly in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, we as your people pray, be glorified in our lives, have your perfect will done in us. Let us seek to be a blessing to our world who many are, are living in darkness and they're struggling with, with pain. Help us to point to Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you again for today. And we pray this all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Happy Sunday, you guys. Have a great day, all right? Bye-bye.